Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. I'm Enid Portuguez, Communications Director for the Foundation. The event recording we have for you today is from February 18th with writer and recent Academy Award nominee Meg LaFauve. Meg was nominated for Best Original Screenplay for the Pixar hit Inside Out, which is a beautiful exploration of a child's emotional journey after her family moves from one city to another. I don't know many humans who've watched it and weren't moved by it, I included. Meg also wrote the screenplay for another Pixar film, The Good Dinosaur, and is now co-writing Captain Marvel with Nicole Perlman. At this event, Meg talks to fellow writer Dana Stevens, and it's a really fascinating look into the process of creating Inside Out and the world inside this character's head. Meg herself is just so animated and effusive that you see where the film gets a lot of its spirit from. Anyhow, listen for yourself. It's one of my favorite conversations, and I hope it's yours, too. I also want to remind everyone that we've got WG Festival Day 2 coming up on April 16. We're welcoming Lawrence Kasdan, Rachel Bloom and Aline Brosh McKenna from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Greg Berlanti and his DC Universe showrunners, and Melissa Rosenberg in the writer's room of Marvel's Jessica Jones. It's going to be awesome, I guarantee you can get your tickets now at wgfoundation.org. In the meantime, enjoy this Writers on Writing with Meg LaFoe. Hello. Is this, is this, is that on? Is this on? <laughs> How are you, Meg? I'm good. I had a little glass of champagne, so I'm all ready to talk. Oh, how's everybody? Um, well, this is a real thrill for me to interview Meg because we've been friends for a long time. And uh, it's been a fantastic um, uh, joy to watch uh, the success of Inside Out and see uh, how how articulate you've been able to be talking about this process. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're gonna, uh, I'm going to start uh, by asking... Make some questions, and then eventually we'll we'll open it up to a Q and A. Um, but uh, the first thing that I wanted to ask you, Meg, is that uh, I'm kind of interested about a few of the secrets. You know, um, we know if you've read some of Meg's interviews that um, Inside Out was not working when Meg was brought on to work on it. That. Uh, uh, I, I, I think it's, you know, public knowledge if you read uh, various interviews that Pete Docter was actually ready to quit the movie. He really felt that somehow he had completely messed it up. And I'm really curious because I know you were brought on to watch it and, and help them fix it. And so I'm a little curious to know about that story. What wasn't working and what were you able to tell them that, uh, that, that helped them? Um, yeah, I was about, they were about a year and a half, two years in. And, you know, in animation, they're storyboarding the movie, um, over and over and over. And so they maybe were three screenings in. Um, and by the third screening, as Pete will tell you, you should really be saying, that's a great, that's the movie. You're starting to really see the movie at this point. Um, and people were coming out of the screening still saying, that's a good idea. (laughs) And it scared the crap out of him. (laughs) Right. Um, and I think that's true for live action, too. You know, if somebody can say to you, especially a producer, that's a movie. To me, that's one of the highest bars you can get, right? Like, they can see the movie. 
Um, and if they say that on your first draft, that's even better, right? Because they can change a lot of stuff and give you lots of notes, but they see the movie and you can see the movie. You're like a million miles ahead. And he, he still wasn't getting that, meaning they liked the elements, but there was no story yet. There was no movie yet. I feel like I'm, you guys are on my back. I'm changing movie my chair because I don't want to be rude. Um, so uh, I came in and um, on the DVD extras, there's this great thing, which is Pete Doctor is famous for taking walks when he gets stuck. And that might be all of us. You sit in a story room and break the story together, the four of you. And um, it was Ronnie Del Carmen, the co-director, Pete, myself, Josh, the head of story. Um, and we would get stuck and Pete would be like, let's go for a walk. Um, and you would just walk the campus around like on the track and talk um, and then go get a cookie because Pete loves cookies. Um, <clears throat> and the, the code name was Cake because he just loves sugar. Um, and uh, he got stuck and he took a long walk through the woods and you can watch in the DVD extras. It's really cool. He took a camera and talked to the camera about his panic uh, and that he's going to get fired, basically, and they're going to they're going to shelve this movie. Um, and he's walking and talking and he's sweating and he's just like, okay, when I get fired, what am I going to miss? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it is so Pete, you know, and what I love about that is we all have been there, right? It doesn't matter. You can be Pete doctor and have won Academy Awards and made huge movies and you still end up walking through the woods wondering when you get fired, what are you going to do next? Um, and it's, it was this amazing moment where he, um, realized that what he was he would miss his house and he would miss you know going to his office and but what he would really miss is the friends he made at Pixar and seeing them every day because they had and what he realized in doing that was um and this is what Pete's really good at and he's he's a genius at imagination but he's especially a genius at just dropping into his emotional authentic experience um and in, in a very simple and by that I mean profound way and what he realized he would miss most is his friends, not because of the good times they had, but because of the hard times they shared. Because they had lost Joe Ramft, who was one of the original founders of Pixar, and he was a storyboard artist and ran story and was a huge part of Toy Story, and he had died in a car accident, and they had all gone through that together, and they had all lost Steve Jobs together, and that was would be what he missed, that kind of common shared connection they all had from having gone through these experiences together and he realized oh wait <laughs> maybe this is about sadness and so but he was still kind of playing with that idea when I came on and he didn't even know if he wanted a writer because he's a writer Josh Cooley the head of story is one of the funniest guys to ever live and can really help out so he was really not sure he wanted a writer and Mary Mary Coleman who's the head of development there had read my writing, but she had also seen me at some a story conference called Cine Story, where I was a mentor. And she kind of knew that I knew how to talk to writers, that I knew how to dig into people's heads and find their stories and help them tell their story. And that that would Pete could that's what Pete needed. Like Pete needed a writer to come in and figure out what his story was that he was trying to tell. Do you understand what I mean by the difference? Like, you can be a writer and come in and say, well, here, I see your elements, and the story I would tell is this. That's incredibly valid. I'm not saying not to do that, but that isn't what Pete needed. What Pete needed was for someone to come in and say, I see these elements, and then just ask him a lot of questions. Even if I secretly think I know, you don't really know. 
until you ask the questions, right? So I met with him, and I did not see the earlier version. They they specifically did not have me see it. You met with him, you hadn't seen it. I, I know nothing. And he pitched me in the in the cafeteria. Well, it's not a cafeteria. It's beautiful. At the Pixar dining room. I don't even know what it is. V, in the V8 restaurant. Um, he pitched me just over the table where they were. He just pitched it out. Because at Pixar, you pitch over and 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 over. And you're not just pitching to each other. You have to pitch to, you know, here comes John Lasseter and Andrew Stanton are coming in and they're going to sit down and ready, go. And you just, you got to pitch it. And, you know, you're watching their faces. Right? And your heart's going, what? And I used to make different colored cards because Pete would get nervous and they would pitch through and I would want him to really hit the character beats in that pitch, right? Like the emotional character beats. So I put them in like big red or orange cards, like, don't forget this card. Um, But so he pitched me the story and I just started asking him questions. Um, And he's, he's listening to me ask the questions, um, trying to dig into it. And then I did tell him, well, this would be interesting to me. You do do that, right? Because you have to, you have to, what's interesting about working with a director, right? Is you have to, it has to be personal to you so you can write it, but you don't own it. And that line is really hard, right? Because it has to be personal or how the hell do you write that scene? Right? It has to be of your life experience, but it's not yours. It's his or hers. So I feel like if you can dig down deep enough, you can find something so common and such a, a human condition experience that you can both own it and it can be personal to you both. But boy, that takes a lot of work, right, to find that. So he pitched it to me, and then I asked him a lot of questions, Then I'll, and he just looked at me, and he went, okay, come upstairs. And we walked past the sign of, nobody may go past this, because it's all the you know secret stuff upstairs. And he just started showing me the boards and where they were and the characters, and I just started asking questions about, well, why, why are they in imagination land? And he's like, because it's cool, and we can go here, and we can see this. And I'm like, but story-wise, why are, what is she getting from that, and where is she... Is she finding out something new about Riley she didn't know before, and she never would have known that about Riley unless she went to Imagination Land? And he was like, hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we, and then it, we just started on a, on a trial basis. It was literally like, you know, a three-week contract. Because like, you're writing with somebody. You gotta, you know, that's like marrying somebody. Like, do, can you write together? We can be, sit in a room and talk, but now you have to write pages, and you have to trade them back and forth, and you have to match voices, and can I get his sensibility and how he thinks. And can I work with Ronnie Del Carmen, who's an amazing artist and he's the co-director and, you know, you just can all these personalities gel together and they did. And we're really lucky they did. And they did in such an amazing way in terms of each, each prong of that wheel really made what inside out is. I don't think you could have taken one of them out and gotten that movie. Um, so I, for me, it was a process of digging, Right down into, um, and when he pitched to me that he thinks it's about sadness and that's really what connects people, I got so excited. To me, that was a once in a lifetime concept Mm -hmm. in terms of the profound nature of that theme. It's simple and complex at the same time. It's something you know, but you don't know at the same time. Like I just, I was just like, in my head, I was like, oh my God, I have to get this job. (laughs) Like I have to help you put that into the world somehow. Um, and I became the kind of person always raising my hand and, you know, trying to keep the, it on that thematic, right? Because as you get those notes coming in, right, it can start to move around. And um, 
And there were so many relationships in the movie. There's Riley, there's joy and sadness, there's bing bong, there's anger and those guys. I mean, there's so many relationships to service. Um, so it was just, you know, now, so we have all these elements. We know it want, we want it to be about sadness, but okay, what's the story? Yeah, um, I, I do want to talk to you a little bit about the, the plot mechanics, which are just so brilliant. I mean, imagine if somebody said to you, um, the character is a, an emotion in your head, and, you know, what are the stakes? You know, what, 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 what matters to her, this emotion in your head? And the first thing Andrew Stanton said in one of her first pitches, guys, what are the stakes? Right. And I was like, I know, I know, I don't know. Because there was nothing. There were no core memories. But there see, were no what, personality yeah. islands. There was nothing. And these guys came up with a an actual, you know, stakes movie, which is about how Joy, because she is trying to save Riley from sadness, messes everything up and loses all the core memories. And then Joy and Sadness end up on this road movie, right, through, through on this journey to save the core memories. And I would like to find out a little more about how you worked together in the room or whether you went home at night and, and thought, what is the plot mechanism for these characters, Joy and Sadness? How did you start to see Joy and Sadness as characters and not just theme, you know? Well, I mean, there's the plot mechanisms, which are so hard and complex in this movie, I can't even tell you. There were dark days um, where I just put my head on the table. I, everybody was gone out of the conference room for whatever reason, getting a tea or whatever, and or a cookie probably. And I just had my head on the table because I was like, it's impossible. What Pete wants is totally impossible. And I don't know how to do it. And uh, one of the editing assistants walked by and she came back in and she was like, are you okay? What are you doing? And I'm like, I was literally like, I'm okay. I just need a minute. And she was like, I'm going to close the door because nobody can see you doing this. <laughs> and I was like, okay, close the door. She closed the door. Um, yeah, there was nothing. And, uh, you know, first of all, I was like, sadness has to be on the road trip with joy. Like, it can't be about go find sadness. That can't be what the plot is because then you're not doing in your movie what your theme is, which is accept sadness and let her on the journey. Like, you, I find that so many times with, with storytellers. They're, they're actually not doing their theme in the movie because their brains haven't actually accepted their own thematic yet. Um, so that was a big push, right? The, she's on the road movie with her. So then it's uh, the idea of core memories came up. Because I was like, well, what is she protecting or what is she going to get? And for the first, the core memories were down in the mine and she had to go get them and protect them. And what is she protecting them from? And core memories came up because we were talking about, you just talk about yourself and on your families and your lives. And we realized that so much of who you are can be something that happened to you, right? Like we were talking with the producer, um, Jonas, loves Disneyland, like loves it because of that day when he was a kid and had the perfect day at Disneyland. And we were like, we were pitching it to John, and I remembered Pete pitching, you know, like Jonas in Disneyland. Like that day at Disneyland, that's a core memory. And John went, hmm, I get it, right? Um, so now we've got the core memories, and I remember, you know, you're just constantly getting notes, and we had them down in the mind, and uh, she was going to get them. And I remember Andrew Stanton saying, well, wouldn't it be better if she, like, had them with her? Because this is, like, the this is the thing of the movie, and she, she, you want to have her actively trying to protect them, not going in. We were like, oh, that's great. And, but what's happening to them? What are the stakes? And how do you connect those stakes to that story, by the way, that's going outside? The, there's three storylines. There's outside, 
there's down in the mind, and then there's in headquarters. And they all have to be interrelated. And they, you know, what's the main relationship? Well, it's with sadness, and Riley's the prize. It's just, it's so complex. Um, I'm starting to sweat just remembering. And then, but so what's at stake? And we, at, at first we had, um, remember in, in, in Sleeping Beauty, they have the black woods kind of that would come out. So we tried a blackness coming over the land um, as Riley's um, moving and getting upset because she doesn't have joy. This blackness was coming and shutting down the mind. And it was scary and, and worked, but it was really too much. There was a danger of it looking like depression, and you didn't really want to put that in the world, that depression is not an illness, and depression is just if you can, you know, cry, you're going to be okay. You know, we didn't really want to, I didn't, I was like, I can't, I can't, it's an illness, right? You can't, you can't say that, really. So, and it wasn't quite working either for Pete. <coughs> and so we had core memories, and we were trying to get Joy to explain core memories, and she's with them, and are they? first they were fading, and then they were turning to dust. But that wasn't quite working, and it wasn't enough. And it's, again, it's not just the stakes, but, like, why do you care about them? Why emotionally are you, as the audience, deeply invested in that engine of, oh, my God, that can't happen? When you were working on this, like, would you actually sketch out ideas for what the core memories were? Were, were you as a writer and then also visually, were they actually? Well, you're in a room with the four of us. And remember, the three of them are artists. And whenever you're in a room with any kind of artist, they draw as they think. Like uh, my doodles, which are like little hearts, they're like making masterpieces next to me. <laughs> And usually they're doodling you, which is always a nightmare. Um, so it's a compliment, they tell me. Because um, it never, it always is horrible. Um, but, uh, you know, Ronnie Del Carmen isn't really a word guy. He's an artist. He's a premier, amazing artist. Like, you know, the whole scene in Up of going up and down the hill and them aging? That's Ronnie Del Carmen. Like, he is just a savant. And um, you would be talking and spitballing and spitballing. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, Ronnie's drawing. Ronnie's drawing. What's Ronnie drawing? And he, he, would, he, he would just come over and he would lay out, you know, paper. Because that's how he writes, right? That, that's his storytelling. And, you'd be, and you could see it um, happening there. Um, and they had had memories. So we knew they, the memories, they had gone to lots of research of, like, eggplants and things. So to see how the memories would move. And, um and then certain things are just you need them from plot, like the fact that the memories can move back and forth with your finger was because we needed that for the end of the second act that she could rewind the memory. Um, so, and then I remember the day, it was just already so complex with memories, core memories, three storylines, what's happening with Riley. It's so complex. The fir- first act is already just going to be a bear to try to get across any, any of this information. And R- Ronnie walked in with a drawing of a personality island. And I remember one of the writers at Pixar on another project said, do you remember the day you walked up to me at lunch and you were like, personality islands, you've got to be kidding. It's <laughs> like just more complex. It's like, oh, let's, let's add another layer of complexity onto this thing. Um, but, you know, and my big push about personality islands is, because it's a great idea, is um, my big push was they have to be emotional. They can't just be islands floating out there that when they crumble, you're intellectually like, oh, that's too bad. Those islands are crumbling. That's probably a bad idea. You have to be like, oh, no. Oh, my God. You know, and how do we do that? Because the design was going to be kind of very, um, 
like work worker like buildings and you know how do you get emotionally upset about that building crumbling and um so it's you know it's written that you're seeing images of goof of that little goofy girl running naked through the house and her wiggling her butt as that island starts to crumble because that's what you're really losing right you're losing that image you're not losing a building or an island you're you, you're losing her so, you know, that when, that's when I knew these are going to work. How the hell we explain it to the audience? <laughs> the core memories power the personality islands. And if you take them out, she's not going to, you know, that whole thing on the stairs where she's going to slide down the stairs and then sadness you know, by accident drops one of the core memories out. So she doesn't slide down the stairs. She walks and then they put it back in and then she slides. I mean, all of that's just so you understand the goddamn rules of this world. What is happening? Um and I remember the day I was just like, can't Joy just look at the camera and tell us? It's Amy Poehler, for God's sake. It'll be great. Because <laughs> um, it was hard. You know, it was, it's, that act one is just uh, unbelievably challenging um, to make it all interesting and all that exposition. Um, and then the other question you had in terms of these characters, um, you know, emotions are hard because they can become one note and, and one singular emotion in like two seconds, right? And that's kind of fun when it's Lewis Black, right? But uh, even for Lewis Black and disgust and fear up in headquarters, they still aren't just that emotion. They still have to have multiple emotions themselves as characters or it, it's they're not real, right? Um, and you're not invested in them. And the hardest character to get was Joy because incessantly happy people are annoying. And nobody liked Joy. That was the other thing when I came in. They were like, we have to figure out the story. And by the way, nobody likes Joy. Did they have, did they have Amy Poehler already reading lines? So, I know. Okay. Amy Poehler came in later. Um, but nobody liked her. And she was annoying and um, bitchy. And nobody liked her because she was... And, and Pete's had a really smart idea, which is that her drive is not for her own power or control in the mind. Because as soon as that is what happens, as soon as it's a selfish motive, you don't like them. And I don't, I, I'm not a big one of you have to like your main characters. But when it's inside out and it's joy, you kind of do, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, Pete's really smart idea as a writer was, no, no, she's fighting for her kid. She's fighting for Riley, and Riley's happiness, which we can all get behind, right? You can all understand that. Whether it's you have a kid or not, you understand that in terms of your sister, brother, mother, you want them to be happy. Um, and I think that the other key to getting Joy down was um, her vulnerability. You know, the vulnerability is, into, is your way into any character and for the audience to emotionally attach to them. So Joy, Joy's default when she got overwhelmed or vulnerable was to get happy, Right. That's how she protected herself from that feeling of being out of control and not knowing and being vulnerable and all the things that we all feel. Her default to protect herself from that is, OK, I'll figure it out. We're going to figure it out. It's going to totally be fine. It is going to be great. It's, I don't know what it is, but it's going to be great. Right. But if you don't see that as a default, you don't like her. As soon as you understand, oh, that's her just trying to get hovering. some hovering and covering you have empathy and you attach to her. So it was constantly in the script calibrating her vulnerability. And to me, that great opening scene where Joy is interacting with this baby, okay, there's who we love and who the movie's for, right? We're going to protect this child. We have this very special relationship. We want that baby to be happy, right? And sadness walks in and goes, <laughs> and 
Joy goes, excuse, just excuse me. Just, I'm going to, do you mind? I'm just going to, and there's the whole movie. Yeah. Right? That's the whole movie in one little, and uh, I, I, I really, when because we were talking about that moment with Joy, and I'm like, well, you know, sadness is going to interrupt that. Yeah. Immediately, because the other thing with sadness is, for Joy's character, and this was also incredibly difficult, and you had to constantly calibrate it, is um, I believe... My story philosophy <laughs> is that uh, you have to be, you have to, whoever your main character is, you have to be deeply within their emotional belief system about the world. Do you understand what I'm saying? They have a psychology, they have formed beliefs, and whatever they believe, you have to believe. Right? So if Joy believes that sadness has no purpose and really should go away, you as the audience have to also believe that. Well, that's really hard to pull off because as an adult human being, and even as a kid, you kind of know, yeah, well, people cry, Joy. Like, people get sad. Why is sadness bad? Like, you're already so far ahead of her that the movie's over. So that's why sadness, her entrance is annoying. And everything about her is adorable and annoying at the same time. Right, we worked really hard to make sadness as annoying as possible, so that you would be in Joy's belief system, so that we could crack it. We could crack your belief system with Joy in the bottom of Act Two, right? So I just—that's how I approach characters. I set up their belief system in the first act, emotionally, psychologically, and then Act Two is the universe, the gods, Zeus beating the crap out of them, trying to get them to switch that belief system. Because basically, Nemo's the easiest one to see, right? The ocean out there is incredibly dangerous. I cannot handle it. You know, when they first did that film, they didn't have that opening at the beginning. It was in the middle of the movie. And nobody liked that fish. Because he has a belief system that you're like, God, what the hell? Right? Why do you believe that? That's just annoying. But as soon as they put that belief system up front, you're like, oh, yeah, no, it's really dangerous out there. And all those babies died. That was horrible. Do not go off this reef. You're in on the belief system, right? That's really dangerous out there. I totally am with you, little fish. You're kind of neurotic, but I get it. That is, I believe it, too. The ocean is dangerous. And the rest of the movie is, it's dangerous, but you did that. It's dangerous, but you did that. Are you sure you can't handle it? Because you did that. And you did that. And it, you're showing, because you know what they say is your mind only knows what it's experienced. That's all you know. So you have to go through the experience to shift the brain. So you're giving your character lots of experiences to show your character they're wrong. If they're a character who changes. If they're not, that's a whole other discussion. Um, so it's, she's 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 wrong and she keeps finding out that she's wrong through every sequence and we would have discussions about well why is this why is this scene in the movie for joy why does she what is she learning here what is she finding out here about herself or sadness or and you had to be able to tell john lassiter for every scene why it's in the movie and why for joy's character where is it shifting her or pushing her um and then at the end of act two is that belief system breaks it breaks and you realize you're wrong. And the third act is prove it by going into action. Put when, that new belief when you talk into about these scenes that you're saying, you know, John's asking these questions, you're asking these questions. At what point are you asked, 
Okay, write this. Write this, and we're all going to read it, and we're going to... Are you actually writing scenes as you go, or are you waiting until everything is decided and then you're asked to write? And I'm curious because in The Good Dinosaur, you have the sole writing credit, and so it probably was a different experience um, writing that as opposed to writing Inside Out. And so I think we're all curious to know, when do you actually sit in the room and, and write the dialogue, and then Amy Poehler says it, blah, blah, blah. I know, and you get really lucky because it's Amy Poehler. Um, uh the Good Dinosaur and and uh, and Inside Out were the same in that it's it was a core for people sitting in a room breaking the story, meaning like if you were alone, you would outline yourself or card yourself, right, and then you would bring pitch it to a friend, and they would ask you hundred questions. You'd tear all the cards down, and then you'd do it again. You're just doing that with the four of you, right? So you're carding and pitching and pitching. I know can't and you card it all up, but as we all know, cards are cards, right? <laughs> Until you write it. Um, now, if you're in early development at Pixar, you might go away and just write the whole thing and get your six weeks or whatever it is to write it. I never had that experience at Pixar because both movies were like dead in the center of like, go, go, go. So I, it was like, okay, all right. We pitched it to John. He had these questions. We addressed those questions. Okay, go write it. Let's see. It's eight o'clock or it's nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, you have to write it as fast as you can. If it's like, um, I can kind of imagine that you're writing like while you're in production is the only way I can describe it, right? So if there's a sequence that I can write quickly because it's mostly action and that's going to really be all the storyboard artist, even in an action movie, you would bring the storyboard artist into, you know, what is the action of this? What is the director? What do you, so Pete and the storyboard artist could go and do that action sequence, but I've had to write it. So I'm tracking the character. I'm tracking the emotion. I'm tracking all that other stuff. But, you know, I would write, you know, acts. And then those acts, as they came in, would get reviewed. I'd, get, I'd rewrite them. And then they're out to storyboard artists. Um, and then once those storyboard artists start drawing, I'm in the room to track, keep the story on track and keep see what they're doing and raise my hand every once in a while <laughs> um, and say, that's such a funny joke you put in there, but that'll fall down and that'll fall down and that'll fall down. Um and then uh, you're getting, then it just all goes out of sequence. Once you've done the whole script twice, now it's all out of sequence and it's going very fast. And then you go into the edit room, and in Inside Out, I was in the edit room, and Dinosaur, I was not. It all just depends on the director, um, where it's all happening again, right? Because you're now with the editor, and you have to remember, because we're in production, in that. When you're like, gosh, I wish we had a close-up right there. There's a, there's Josh on the Cintiq. Close-up. Right? Because they're drawing it. So uh, you're, you're immediately seeing in edit, that worked really good on the page. That worked really good in boards. And it does not work at all anymore. Because when you put it in with everything else, it just, it just all fell down. Um, so it's kind of you're writing in production as long as I can describe it. Um, and the dinosaur was the same. It was, it was Eric Benson, who's a storyboard artist, the head of story, Kelsey, um, Pete Stone, the director and myself. Um, but Pete doctor is a writer and Josh is a writer. So they were literally writing pages and we were flipping them. And cause there's, again, Josh took headquarters. I took the mind. Then we would flip and just go and go. Um, whereas in dinosaur, after we carded it, I would go out and write on my own. Yeah. Um, I'm interested uh, about 
the fact that if you think about Pixar movies, they all have a very similar theme, which is it's horrible to let go of your of your childhood and 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 these things, you know. And in Toy Story, you know, the feeling of the toys have that they're not going to be played with anymore, and the, those themes are in in Inside Out as well. This feeling that Bing Bong is going to fade away and not be in our memories, and we all find that incredibly moving. I'm I'm getting for Clemp right now, just talking about it, and I. I'm going to throw you a hard question because you may go, I'm not answering that. Screw you. <laughs> but how do you think that Inside Out furthers or adds or helps us move? You know, how does it fit into that kind of Pixar thing? Because I feel like it it, it is a great new addition, like a step forward or something. So I wondered if you thought that too. Well, it's funny because, you know, they never ever talk about that stuff at Pixar. Um there's never any discussion, at least that I've ever been part of, of the other movies or any kind of like theme arcing through all of them. It's very, very centered on what's the best story right now or in this room, in this moment. Have you pushed it far enough? Where you know, like you get notes from anybody, right? All the, those great friends you have um, who give you notes. Um, you know, if you were to, act, I mean, just my personal opinion would be, you know. It was Pete's idea. I, before I came in, Bing Bong was already going at the end of the second act. And uh, Pete talks about how it it thrilled him and scared him, the idea of Bing Bong going and making that sacrifice. Um, because he had to let her grow up, right? Um, and I think there might be the difference between, again, I'm just guessing, is they're talking about themselves, but they're also talking about themselves as parents, right? And he was really focused on letting his daughter grow up and losing that child. And isn't that weird as a parent? Like I was really just looking at pictures of my kids when they were smaller. And I'm like, that kid is gone. <laughs> it's a, it's a very strange thing there. Of course he's sitting right there, but, but he's not because his brain is totally different. And, and you know, it's a very strange experience as a, as a parent. Right. So I think, to me, that letting Bing Bong go so she can grow up is a parent's view of that loss of childhood versus the kid's view of that loss of childhood. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, he understood that he had to let that happen so that she could mature and grow up. Um, I, what I find interesting is some people walk up to me and they just want to talk about Bing Bong and how that made them cry. And some people want to walk up and just talk about the end of the movie and her talking to her parents and those balls turning bl blue. And everybody is very deeply, passionately upset about which part of the movie they're upset about. <laughs> and someday when I have time, I'm going to do a psychological study about what it means about you, which one you want to talk to me about, because they're very different people. Do, do children, have you had any chance to talk to children? Because I, I feel like the movie's very sophisticated. It's very adult. And that's what's great about all the Pixar films, is they're able to be totally engaging to adults and children as well. And I wondered, you know, if you had any experience with what children made of it, you know, like... Well, what's really interesting to me is um, every age experiences a different movie, which is what I love about the movie. So super little kids, if you think about it, hopefully have not experienced loss in a deep way yet. So Bing Bong dying is different to them than it is to you as an adult who's lived years of your life and processed loss in a very deep way. You are reading into that moment all layers and levels of your existence that a child is not. And children understand their emotions in a way better than you because they're very present. 
I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm angry. And they're moving on because life is not that deep for them yet. Right? It just isn't. There's no reference to that. Right? It's not like, you know, I'm sad just like when my grandmother died. And, but like all that stuff that comes with you. They're just like in the moment right now. This is my life. Um, so they really actually accept the movie much quicker than adults. Because they're like, yeah, <laughs> that's how it is. Um, whereas adults bring all this other layered, uh, uh, I'm not going to call it baggage. I will call it experience uh, to the movie. So it, it, it can work on all those levels. Well, let's talk a little bit about your upcoming project and how it's been to transition uh, from an animation and, and from really almost being like a co-director with the, with your projects. You really get to be so involved at every level and with the actors. And, and now I know you're just starting out, but you're now writing a live-action film. Uh, and I'm interested to know how is that process um, sitting with you? How is it different um, you know, well, I mean, I, I'm doing two different movies, the Marvel movie with Nicole Perlman, I have someone to bounce ideas off with and we're just starting. So that's still all in the fun play. It could be this, it could be that, it could be that kind of s- stuff. Um, but I'm doing another movie, um, for D- Disney live action about starring Tina Fey about a witch and it's all has to be invented. And I literally am in my office like, what have I done? <laughs> I have taken a movie that needs a giant world-building rules. Ah! And I'm all by myself. There's not three other people to, like, spitball. I literally, in my office, like, where is everybody? I mean, by the end of Pixar, I was like, everybody go away. I just want to be alone in a room. I don't want to get one more note from one more person. Because um, you, you get a lot of notes. Um, which is good. The movies always get better. Um, but now I'm finding I, I need that creative churn. I, I, I need it and I need a lot of I need feedback um, so I'm doing it with the producer and I you know I think my rep, my reps might be shocked by it because I'm handing them really early wet, dripping wet stuff like I just handed in a 16 page outline that was mostly questions because <laughs> I want to have a conversation how did they react well they haven't gotten back to me yet <laughs> Well, I'm, I have kind of, I'm lucky because people want to have the Pixar process. So I'm like, you want to have the Pixar process? This is the Pixar process. Here's a 16-page thing of questions. Let's talk about it. Um, but I, I'm hoping, I don't know, we should talk to me in a year. I'm hoping that they can become invested in it and let that churn happen and not worry about what it has to be, should be. You have to give me answers. I'm not looking for you to give me answers. I'm looking for you to just spitball ideas until we're like, oh, 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 my God, oh, my God, I think that's really good. Is that good? I think it is. Is that, it is. Oh, my God, it is. You know, and just, like, plant that flag. Okay, now we're going to plant that stake in the ground. Okay, what does that mean? We're going backwards, forwards in the story, and what does that change? Did that just change the theme? No, it didn't just change the theme. Actually, deepen the theme. That's your, I just, I want to have that conversation with somebody. Um, so we'll see. I, I mean, they're, they're really up for it. And, and it's funny because sometimes people say to me, you can't do that with a development executive. And, you know, you can't. And I'm like, um, I was a development executive. And yes, you can. Yeah. I'm not saying all of them, but there are really smart ones out there. And you, I think you can. I don't, can talk to me in a year. We'll see. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, your, you, you gave me the perfect segue, you know, how uh, your experience uh, in development and working for Jody um, made you uh, into a storyteller and then also... 
you know, what was the moment when you were like, I'm going to jump off this bridge and I'm going to be a writer? I mean, well, definitely. I mean, I, I am the writer I am because I worked with Jody for so many years because there's no smarter story brain on the planet. Um, and if you want to pitch her a story as an actress, you want her to be in it. You have to walk up to her and say, OK, here is the log line. And the big, beautiful idea in here is this. Immediately. Which means the writer better have articulated it because if you haven't, I'm going to pick one and I'm going to tell her that's what it's about. Um, and uh, and if you don't if you don't know thematically what you're doing, you, you're it's just going to be a clusterfuck making the movie because the director is going to come in with one idea, the actor is going to come in with another idea, production design is going to come in with another idea, and you're just going to get a big brown mess, right? So you have to lay it down so it's very very clear in your script what this is about, um, and then everybody jumps onto that idea, right? So Jody taught me about that, and she just taught me to approach storytelling from an actor or a director's point of view, because that's what she is. So those are the questions she's asking, right? And she's always building from what is this about up to her character. She would build characters based on what's their shame and fear, and then everything else is covering that up, all the other mechanisms or their psychologies to keep you away from that vulnerability, right? How she would, you know... She would. She never talked about polls, but eventually understood that she is an actor. And my husband worked with Harrison Ford once, and we both realized they both want this, which is they want polls of their character. I start here and I end here, and then as an actor, I'm going to play in between, right? But I need to know what is the sandbox I'm in, right? Or she would say she said to a really young writer one day, and I was like, I warned the writer. I don't know why she didn't have an answer. But she looked at her and she goes, okay, but because this was for her to play as an actress. And she goes, but I don't get it. Why this antagonist for this protagonist? Why is this the only person in the world who could come at my character and crack her? Why? Why this antagonist for her? And poor first time director was like, uh, uh, uh. I mean, first time writer. And I was like, I can tell you, but I can't tell you. Um, so all of that just kind of got into my... And because I worked with so many great writers, all of their approaches, like Jane Anderson, you could not in the edit room unravel her scripts. You couldn't. Because even though this scene appeared to have, you could just go and cut it out when you did, the whole movie went poof. Because she knew so well how to construct. And she would say the DNA, the theme is the DNA of every scene. And she would know how to evolve it in every scene. And she would have every character as necessary, which is a little scary because then if the supporting actor stinks, you want to cut them out, you can't, and all kinds of other problems as a producer. But um, So I, I just learned from all these great writers and how they approach things. And um, I learned from asking them lots of questions. I learned a lot from teaching. Boy, you learn a lot from teaching. Because um, you ask the same 10 questions over and over and over and over. And I realized, oh, these are the 10 core questions of every story. Because I ask them over and over and over. Like, first of all, who's your main character? Do you find yourself resisting those questions? Like, now that you're a writer, like we all do, <laughs> we don't want it. You I, don't, like, I, I just want to write. I don't want to answer the question. I always do the puke draft where I don't answer the question or the puke outline or the puke whatever. But then you got to go ask the questions, yeah. you know. And sometimes you're like, yeah, what is the main relationship of this movie? I don't even know. Um but now they're just kind of ingrained in me, too, to, to, to always be. They're like the anchors at the bottom. Um, and then what was the other question you asked me? Well, you decided to be a writer. I did. Because my husband uh, listened for years and years and years to me complain and bitch about it. <laughs> and I mean years, like 10 years. You mean and like these stupid writers went... <laughs> 
No, more like existential spiritual crises of like, really, is this this is why I came to the earth? Because I'm just supposed to help other people with their stories? I mean, I just think maybe not. I mean, maybe I think I am supposed to be telling my stories, but I don't know because... And he would just sit over dinner like, oh, my God, you're bringing this up again. And finally, one day, we were on a plane coming back from our vacation in Santa Fe because that's what happens, right? You go on vacation and you relax, and then all that stuff starts to rise up into your brain that you've been pushing down by staying very, very busy. But now you're not busy, so that's when you fight with your husband and all that stuff happens on vacation, right? Because it all starts to rise up. And I was on the plane doing it again, right? I can't believe I'm going back, and I have such a good job, and it's Jody Foster, and I'm one of the luckiest people in the world, but I just really think that I'm not supposed to be doing it. Like, is that crazy? I wish, I mean, but of course, it's crazy. I mean, it's Jody Foster. I should just still be doing it, but I don't know. It just feels so uncomfortable, and I can't believe it. And he just looked at me, and he goes, Meg, shit or get off the pot. And I was like, what? And he was like, I'm dead serious. You either go and quit and be a writer, and do it. Or you can never talk about this again to me. Uh Ever. And I, of course, was like, I can't believe my own husband. I was so hurt. You're horrible. (laughs) I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Because he's totally right. So how long did it take you to shit or get off the pot after that? Not long. (laughs) And I think he was shocked. Because, you know, it's income and all kinds of other ripples start to go out. And I think part of him was like, holy shit, she did it. Um, but then, of course, I immediately had, I quit. And uh, Jody, uh, we, Jody took me, we went to the commissary and we had hot dogs. And because we never did all that executive stuff. And because she grew up with crews, right? She just wanted to be a normal person. And, and, uh, and so I told her, I said, do you want to have a production company? And she's like, yeah, no, I, I don't want to be a producer anymore. I just want to direct my own stuff. I'm like, well, why do we have this company? And she was like, for you. And I'm like, oh, my God, don't do it for me. I don't want to do it either. It was like some weird, you know, gift of the magi thing going on. Is the, is the company no more? She uh, just has it for herself as a director. Um, you know, as an actress, she was amazing, but she was used to re- reading things in the 15th draft, right, by the time you send it to an actor. Mm-hmm. And she would be like, well, it's a mess, but... And I know, you know, you so know from messes, right? I know from messes. And but, you know, as a producer, you're reading real first drafts yeah. where she would just be like, OK, we're done. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. That's a first draft. It's all supposed to not work. That's what a first draft is. You just say none of this works, but this is kind of good. And that's kind of good. And that's really good. OK, now get rid of everything else. Um, so she she, she will say this. I'm not speaking out of school that she, she's development to her was just like, what? Um, so I quit and then I, okay, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to do it. I have no place to go. I have no job because today I'm going to write. And then I immediately got pregnant because there's no better excuse to not write than have a baby. And then I had another baby and now I have two babies and these babies are hungry and they need to be diapered. And how can I write? (laughs) So I, but I did, I started to, I, I, my problem was that I, as the analyzer part of my brain was super trained, overtrained probably, you know, I could sit in rooms with directors and Al Pacino and I could talk story with anybody, but that doesn't mean you can write it. It's a totally different part of your brain, like literally a different part of your brain. 
So you still have to write like crap like everybody else. So I can analyze at the NBA level, but I'm playing JV ball like in high school in terms of, and the problem is your brain immediately, my analyzer brain, I would be typing and and I would hear, well, that's just, that's just what, that's going nowhere. And and it would start to do it. And I, and so I could never get out of the gate. So I just stopped writing scripts and I started writing short stories. I wrote a novel, but any plays, anything that analyzer didn't, wasn't an expert on because it didn't know the rules. It didn't, know anything about it right and I would find like I took some UCLA extension I found people who were experts on that just to keep the the flow going and I just wrote a lot of and I wrote and then I went back to scripts because a a, a friend said to me you have a dry riverbed you've just got to get water in the riverbed just get a couple of drops every day a couple of drops water attracts water right just every day a little bit more water a little bit more water and just trust it'll come and that and and I had to pick star that's you just have to trust every day <laughs> got to go go in there you know because it's an 8 hour day job you go into the office and you trust it's going to come and then I got a, a writing partner and he was an actor and he really helped me because because that analyzer would stop me right and it would be like well then I would do that to him in the writing process he John Morgan and he would go well, no, let's, let's have her go to, back to school. Like, what if she went back to school? I'm like, listen, that's not going to work. Because if she goes back to school, that'll fall down and that'll fall down. And that makes no sense because of this. And it's a cul-de-sac, John. It's a cul-de-sac. But he was an actor, so he was really used to playing. Right? Actors play all the time. They improvise. Go, go, play, play. So he would go, I know, Meg, but if we go down the cul-de-sac, there might be a piece we need to bring back. So he taught me to play. And just to put that to the side and just play and just play and play and play. And that's all you do at Pixar is play. It's like I had to go through all these experiences to get all these different skills so that when I hit Pixar, I had that skill box ready. But you don't know that while you're gathering the skills. You know, like you think, oh, my God, I'm going backwards. Or Warner Brothers hated that script I wrote. Crap. They hate it. Because when they told me they wanted it to be real, I thought they meant real. They meant, like, my friend was like, Meg, Warner Brothers, when they say real, they don't mean Meg real. They mean, you know, bridesmaids real. (laughs) And I was like, oh, if they told me that, I could have done that. Why didn't they tell me that? But the funny thing was, so I was devastated because they weren't going to do the second draft, and they were, like, done. And uh, I was, because I'm a dog with a bone, I was like, I'm going to come in. I'm going to pitch a brand new story based on the bridesmaids reel. I'm going to do it. I'm doing it. Uh, but what's funny is, so I feel like that's a failure and I've gone backwards, but that's the script that got me to Pixar. Like, you never know, because that's the real Pixar wanted. Like, you know, as long as you're pushing towards your truth and your authentic self and that thing that was calling me that I kept complaining about for 10 years, um, it'll, it, it, it's, it, it knows it, what it's doing and what skills it's trying to gather. And you still have to get up every day and write, and you have to still show the universe every day you're committed. Every day. Prove it. Are you committed? I have a friend who, she keeps changing what she, who she is because every time it gets super hard or challenging, she sees that as a sign from the universe that that's not the way she's supposed to go. And I don't know how to explain it to her, that it's completely the opposite the universe is saying, really? You want to get better? Okay. Jump that high. Oh, you fell down. I know. Didn't you learn a lot when you fell on your butt? You know, the challenge is what you're supposed to be doing. I mean, when I was working at Pixar, after the first two weeks, I came home and laid on the living room floor 
literally on the carpet. And I looked at my husband. I was like, I have to quit. It's too hard. It's so hard. This story is so hard. I don't know animation. I don't know what anybody's talking about. All this terminology. And the story's so hard. Did I say the story was hard? I can't. I got I Joe, I don't think I can do it. And he looked down at me and he was like, honey, why did you think when you were going to play for the majors, it was going to get easier? It doesn't get easier. It gets harder. <laughs> it gets harder. But you get a lot, a, a lot back, right? You're just, your skill set is just revving up higher and higher. So, um, and when you have something as good to work on as Inside Out, of course you stay and you push and you hope you don't get fired. Just like Pete, even Pete thought he would get fired. So oh, no, the first when we pitched the new version of Inside Out after I started, I we on the taxi driving because I was just flying back and forth from the hotel. I literally, I have a distinct memory. I know what the day was like. Thinking, well, this might be my last day at Pixar. <laughs> everybody, everybody at Pixar, you're always out on an edge. You're all, you always kind of feel a little naked. The artists, everybody, because that's what they're asking you to do to get that vulnerable and push that hard into something so authentic for you. Um, and I think that's their genius, honestly. So guys, we're going to open it up to, to questions from, from you. If, uh, if you want to raise your hand in the back there. I just want to say that. <laughs> Thank you. Hello. Here in the middle here in the black. Oh. I talk really loud. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much. Um, I agree. I totally agree. Totally brilliant. But first, I want to say thank you for articulating the nuances of writer skill development, because that's what you just did by explaining the challenges, and but to keep at it. So my question is, when in your process from going from development executive to writer, did you understand and know that um, it's got to be it every day? Because you mentioned that, you know, you got pregnant and then, you know, you got sidetracked. So was there a moment that you just said, okay, I'm really going to commit? Well, I think for me, one of the shifts in my brain, again, if you're talking about belief systems, you're creating your own belief system. So create one that works better for you. But um, uh, I, um, I started instead of fighting for myself and fighting for my ego or fighting for this idea of myself and who I have to be like some sort of combo of the perfect mother, Buddhist monks. I don't know what the hell I think I'm supposed to be. Um, I just started fighting for the character. Um, so I believe, I know this is going to get all weird, but I believe that if you're a writer, you hold a sacred job that the universe has decided that you are the conduit and it's given you a brain and a heart and a psychology and life experience that might have sucked when you were growing up, but it was important to get you calibrated because it has stories to tell through you. But I, I, I know people, and I have friends who are artists, so the, the universe is, is uh, I have a friend who's an artist, and the, the universe tells art through her. And I can tell when she has not been in her studio because it's like backwater, it's like brackish water. Do you understand what I mean? Like it's supposed to be flowing out through her and instead it's getting backed up and it's get and she's getting really grumpy. 
and she starts to complain about her husband, and she starts to complain about her house, and she start, and I'm, and I finally am like, "Have you been in your studio in a little while?" No. I'm like, before you divorce your husband, why don't you go paint? Do you understand what I mean? Because it's backed up. So, you're. If you can think about writing every day, not as a chore or a have to or a should, because that doesn't work for me. Because then I just, some part of my brain is like, oh, really? Well, what if I don't? What if I just get on Facebook? <laughs> right? Uh-huh. I don't have to, really. Well, that's some childish part of my brain. I clearly had a very domineering father. Um, so I, I decide to... I, I, I that story wants to come out. If you don't sit your ass down and write it, that character will never exist. They will never come into being. They will never be here. They will never get to tell us what they're supposed to tell us. And if you don't take notes, their story won't get clear. Nobody's going to get it. It's not just for you. It is for you, but it's for the world. It's for me. It's for everybody who's going to come into contact with it. So you have to get clear and know that part of the journey is getting notes. Because even if you don't like it, they didn't get it. Why they didn't get it and how to fix it, that's all up for grabs. But they didn't get it. So if you can kind of think about it, you're fighting for the story. You're fighting for the character. I don't mean against executives. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in your head. Do you know what I'm saying? Because once you get a director and executives, that's a whole other conversation because now it's not yours anymore. Now the universe has handed it off to that person. And so you better be really careful who you handed it off to. Right? Did you have a conversation with them about what they think it's about? I hope so. And if you need the money, take it. Everybody, you know, there's good reasons to do everything. So... That's the shift I made to get myself. And I still don't write enough, honest to God. <laughs> There's days I, I write out of sheer panic. Fear is a great driver for writing. Oh, my God! It's due! Shit! <laughs> due dates are good. Friends are Writing groups are good. Give yourself due dates, right? Your good friend who's like, give me those pages. <coughs> okay, great. Um, hello, I'm Kanisha. Um... Uh, the Good Dinosaur to me is such a raw movie, and I have two kids, and they love it. They they are crazy for it, um, and it reminded me watching it. The it's raw the way that Grimm's fairy tales are raw, um, which I appreciated, and I think kids appreciate that. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the process of writing that movie, if that was intentional, or if you even feel that way about it. Hold on. <coughs> was a totally different experience in that uh oh the universe is saying shut up I'm stubborn um, The Good Dinosaur was a movie that got stopped and I was brought in and we had to reboot the whole thing so Inside Out took had five years to percolate. He was a year and a half, two years in when I came in. So that's a lot of time to layer and and good dinosaur nine months. So we're going really fast. And uh, change directors. And uh, 
it had to be a, it was a conscious decision to say simple stories can also be incredibly profound and beautiful, like Black Stallion or Never Cry Wolf, right? And what would happen if instead of filling an animated movie with all this stuff, right? Kids' movies now are so loud and so much stuff is going on. Could you do an animated movie that was immersive and really let those animators create the movie? Could you do that? And I I think the answer is yes, but it's very strange for some people. They don't get it, right? Like, what are you doing? Um, So as a writer, I went from three stories, so many characters, so many rules, world building, just craziness to two characters in the woods, which has its own challenge. It's just a totally different challenge. Um, so it was very intentionally that Pete Stone, the director, wanted to do a movie where the antagonist is nature. So at one minute, nature is incredibly beautiful and giving this profound, beautiful experience, and the next minute, it's going to kill you, <clears throat> which might have been how we felt making the movie. I don't know. <coughs> so um, we have to take that out of the tape. Um, <clears throat> So, uh, you know, it was digging into Pete's own and what does he want it to be about? Because the one thing I can't give a director is thematic. I can talk about thematic. I can give lots of ideas, but I don't, it's their personal experience. It's their life. And what they emotionally feel um, wells up in them. I, I do a lot of different exercises, which I got from teaching, to try to dig into what that could be and bring it into their conscious mind. Because sometimes that's what the work is, right? Like, it just hasn't yet come into their conscious mind. And they're, they're searching for it and how to articulate it. And I do exercises with them to try to be like, okay, that, I think you're trying to do that. But, you know, generally it's whatever makes you feel like you're going to throw up because it's, it makes you feel so vulnerable, right? Like when Riley, I didn't even realize that I had written something so vulnerable. But originally in the script for Inside Out, Riley says... You want me to be happy, but I'm not. And that is what I wanted to say to my parents when I was 11. Like, from my heart. I mean, it helps that they're both dead now because I didn't have to say it. But um, I, I think it loosened me up to be able to say it, right? Because I don't have to... They're not around. Um, so it was... It, the Good Dinosaur was... You know, that relationship... I, I loved Spot so much. You know, that character of Spot. Um and he was such a profound little character. Um, and I remember saying to Pete Sohn, he is the teacher, for sure. Spot is the teacher. He's Arlo's teacher. But Spot is lonely. You know, he has his own arc here for himself. Um, so, yeah, it was really meant to be simple and raw. Um, I know, I love the movie. I don't, I don't think, I think it will be discovered. I think it couldn't go up against Inside Out because it's so different, but I think it'll be discovered later. Hi, um, I'm Hanif. I tried four times to get pregnant, to get out of writing, but <laughs> it's not working for me. Uh, I have a question, but I just want to ask you one thing. Why you are not directing a movie for Pixar? I mean, seriously, I, do I have to give you five bucks? Uh, Pixar is pretty, um, right now, it, it could change, but right now it's very, um, it, it has a very secure system of where they get their directors from, which is they're all coming up through animation or through the storyboarding process. 
Um, and it's that's been set like that. I mean, in essence, I would be jumping in front of people who have been working in that process for like 10 years of their life. And quite honestly, I wouldn't even want to do that to them. I love them all and I deeply respect them as artists and they've been working their ass off. So it, it, even it would make me uncomfortable. Like it wasn't like something I was going to go sit in John Lasseter's office and ask him because then I'm jumping people who I so deeply respect. So what I ended up doing was helping them, you know, find their stories. And, you know, especially the women, I'm really trying to help the women, you know, find their stories and, and um, articulate them. Um, but the guys, too. I'm meeting with the guys at lunch, too. But um, so it's just not a process at Pixar. Now, at Disney, it's the, that ceiling's been broken because the writer uh, did Frozen. She took over on Frozen. So there, but it's a different, it's a different thing. In relation to that, a lot of writers, like, um, they're also directors. Um, how can we approach Pixar or a world like Pixar as a writer-director for a project in a Pixar-related world? Yeah, well, Pixar itself, you can't. I can't. It's one of the reasons, um, again, not for, uh, don't tweet this, but, um, I, you know, I, I was not as a writer going to be able to pitch stories, even to the directors, in terms of we should do a movie about or I have this story. That's just not how it works. The, they come up with their own ideas. It's more like indie film, right? Um, so it, my experience as a writer was going to be limited there. I was only ever going to be able to write other people's stories, which is one of the reasons I left because I want to be able to tell my own stories. Um, so at Pixar, it's quite strict. There's no way in. Honest to God, there's no way in. It's all the directors coming up, and it's a it's a, a closed system. Um, I think Disney animation might be different, but the Pixar animation is, is pretty closed. But, like, I have a book that I, I wanted to do animated, so I found who I thought was doing the most beautiful animation in the world, and they're Irish, and they're called Cartoon Saloon, and they do Secret of the Kells and Song of the Sea. And uh, so I went to them, right? And, you know, so there's other people who are doing innovative, amazing work. Um, it's just not going to be Pixar. Thank you very much for all of this. Um, I have a very specific question about Inside Out. I'm so curious as to how you guys decided that the dominant personality in the mom was sadness, and the dominant personality in the dad was anger. Everybody asked this question. So funny. Um, I'm so curious. That was, that was the only scene that was kind of written and done when I came in that stayed. Um, I did every once in a while try to rewrite the dad, so he was less 1950s, but it would just always flip back. So, um, <clears throat> um, Pete would just tell you that uh, that's what he chose. I mean... It, there isn't, I, I don't, I've never heard of a deeper reason. Um, I, th I know the reason that they're all got mustaches or look is just, it was literally just about simplicity of you're jumping between three people's heads and you need to know where you are. You need to know whose head you're in. <clears throat> we can make up a lot of kind of film theory critique uh, essays about why they have all homogenized into a single sex by that age or whatever. But it really, <laughs> it was just, uh, it was just about clarity of jumping between their heads. And Pete never told me why he picked those as their lead characters, but um, I was so busy. I never, I was like, that's done. Okay. What else? <laughs> Hello. Um, Hi, um, my name is Julie. Um, I I know you said you left Pixar because you weren't going to be able to tell your own stories. Um, this might be because I watched Inside Out two days ago um, with her daughter. <laughs> um, but 
I feel like I'm I'm wondering what your opinion is on how much of you ended up in some of the main characters because like your story about laying on the floor, all I saw was sadness laying on the floor. <laughs> That's true. Um, so I mean, you a lot you're a lot of who you are, whether it's conscious or not, is going into your work, right? Like uh, I have a special needs kid, so a lot of Arlo is my kid. You know, just unable to do what everybody else can do. Um, and his frustration about that. And, um, you know, I'm certainly joy to the annoyance of my son sometimes. So it's just like, come on. Like, it's so funny because, you know, I'm all this modern mom about emotional intelligence. And I write this movie about justice, sadness. And then my son, when she says to her parents, you want me to be happy, but I'm not, leans over to me. And he goes, in the movie, leans over, he's 12, and goes, I sure know what she's talking about. So I can script my kids just like everybody else. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, that all of that, you know, sadness sitting next to everybody asked me what my research is. My research was going to a preschool in Van Nuys called Children's Circle, which is all about emotional intelligence. Their, their theory is you can there's no need to teach numbers and letters until a child can regulate their emotions. And 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 that intelligence means they can learn anything. So you would learn that when and a lot of it <laughs> the preschool teacher the head of the preschool eventually told you after you graduated that no no he was teaching you the parent mm-hmm. not the kids because the kids come out pretty much knowing what to do and you've messed them up so all of your attachment issues come up right all that stuff so all that stuff about when she sat next to bing bong when he lost his rocket and said wow you you know you, you that's really sad you you loved that rocket I bet you and Riley had a lot of great adventures. That's all you would do at preschool, right? Like you would have a kid building a sign castle and some other kid would walk up and be like, and that kid would start to cry, right? Well, as a parent, you're like, come on, it's just a sandcastle. Let's build another one. Don't be sad. You know, you try to fix it. And the, the head of the preschool would say, you know, if you had just worked on a project for three days and then your computer crashed and you lost it, you'd be pretty mad. Would you want someone to sit down next to you and say, don't be mad, just do another project? <laughs> you you kind of you wouldn't. You kind of would tell that person to F off. So don't do that to that kid. Because that sandcastle to them in that moment was the same thing. They worked really hard on that. They had an idea in their head. So all you do is you sit down and you... You narrate back to the child what they're feeling because you're teaching them how to intellectually understand their own emotions. You're giving them words. You're giving them a way to process it. So you say things like, wow, you worked really hard on that castle and it's gone. And then they get bigger. And that's what we're scared of as adults, right? You're just going to make it worse. And it does. It gets bigger at first. And you just do what she did. And then they process it. And then they go, okay, I'm done. And they walk up and go do something else, right? But that is a lot of your own processing, right? Trying to just to stay in the moment with your child and all that emotion coming at you. (coughs) It's hard, right? I tried to do it this morning with my 12-year-old and I failed miserably. Finally, I was like, listen, just go to school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I'm in that. Riley coming home and talking to her parents is exactly what I wanted to say to my parents, um, yeah, you're, you're in every scene when you're a writer, right? Hopefully some part of you is in every scene. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm all over both of them. 
Hi. I read this. I read the script, and I have to say the plot is so tight. And when when I was reading it, I said, "This is such a good script. This is such a good script."、Uh, when I saw the movie, it didn't strike me as much, but the script is so solid. And I want to say,、um, the question is, what is the core that you are holding on to? Because there's, like you said, three storylines, and they all work like dominoes. It just one after another, one after another. It's so tight. What is the core you're holding on to so they actually work together? Such a good question, and I'm starting to sweat again. <laughs> you know, the jo- Jonas says that Pete finds his movies, and that really was. I mean, I can't tell you how late into this process we were like, I don't think this is working, like late, because it is so layered, and if one piece of that Went off. The whole thing would go crash. So, but things started to solidify in each storyline, and they would be like stakes in the ground, right? Like she's going to run away, right? That's a pretty big stake in that story, right? That's going to ripple through all three storylines, right? Well, how did she get the idea to run away? Somebody gave it to her, so now you have to back that up. So it was more about putting the stakes in the ground for in the three different storylines, so that they start to talk to each other. Does that make sense? What I'm saying?、Um, But the core, of course, is joy, and what you want to put her through. That that's she's the main character, so everything is about reflecting, pu- pushing joy, like to crack her, right? So, what would be the worst thing that could happen is you lose your kid, like she's gonna run away. That would be the worst. <laughs> what would be one of the worst things that Joy could ever hear? Right, so it's、uh, it, it it's always about joy and what she's learning about sadness and and how we're pushing joy,、um, and really, if you're thinking about the headquarters, those three lunatics left up there by themselves. They're the comic <laughs> relief, right? I mean, they are, but they are like, if you want to make it hard on joy, have those three bozos up there, totally messing it up. You don't want them running her head. My、right? God, that is like a disaster, right? For joy, from Joy's point of view, we gotta get those guys can't be running the ship. Oh my God, right? You know, you have to make it as hard as possible on the main character, just as hard as you can. Just beat them up with a stick, right? So those, all of that is more pressure on Joy, more pressure on Joy, because it's incredibly hard to change somebody's psychology, especially when it's been born in childhood. Right, like those belief systems. You know, I, I guess I will say this little piece of self-helpness, because I, I, and I learned this from working with、uh, students. Because when I quickly, after years of doing it, it became very clear to me that a lot of these stories couldn't be written because it hadn't come into their conscious mind yet, and I cannot do anything about that. I can help, and I can, and yeah. And then I got to be really careful because I'm mucking around in psychology here, and I, you know, I don't want to break anybody, right? <clears throat> But What came very clear to me is something formed, a belief system formed in childhood that saved that child from whatever threat psychologically. I don't mean like you know knives. I mean psychological threat that that child felt. So, for example, I grew up with five, four brothers and sisters, very powerful father, <clears throat> artist mother, and it my safety zone was to disappear. If I could just get really, really small, and really, really quiet, which means reading basically, and just not be seen, I could stay safe. 
as soon as I spoke up, made myself seen, my brother was going to beat me up or my dad was going to yell at me or stuff, shit happened, right? The problem is that belief system did save you as a child. It did. It thinks it's still trying to save you. It literally thinks you will die if, you're, if I'm seen. It, it, and it's still with me, right? The problem is, as an adult, the belief system that saved you as a child will kill you as an adult, in my opinion. Not all the time, but I just saw it over and over and over with writers. Over and over and over. Because think about me. So I'll just use myself as an example. If I want to be a writer, I can't be invisible. But I was trying to be a writer as an executive. I was trying to stay unseen and write through the other writer. That's dangerous for the writer and the executive. But it's not out of some Machiavellian horrible thing because I'm a horrible executive. It's because I have a belief system unconsciously in my head that I can't be seen. But you have this other thing pushing, right? Because you actually do have the brain of a writer, and it's pushing. That, that water is trying to come through. So that's why I'm screaming at my husband all the time, <laughs> right? Because I'm getting... I, I can't, I don't know how to put these two things together in my head. I don't know how to, how to balance the psychology of you'll die if you're seen, but you need to tell a story. So it, eventually it will break, right? Under enough pressure, the pain, the pain of following the old belief system finally outweighs the pain and the fear of doing the new thing. This balance like will tip over. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, that's what you're trying to do to your character too. Like you're trying to shift that psychology. She, you have to make me believe and joy totally believes that it is really bad for Riley to have sadness. We have to believe that if she turns those balls blue, it's a, it's a death. It's a death. We'll lose her so that we're fighting. We feel the stakes of that. We're like the engine of that story is just powering through because we believe it too. So that at the end, when she hands those balls over to turn blue, she, could she ever, ever in her a million years have done that in the first act? No. It's the opposite of her belief system. Now imagine trying to get someone's brain to go from there to there. That's a lot. You've got to beat the crap out of them. Right? That's a, that would take a whole second act. Right? So it's shifting that belief system to what will make you live. What is going to save Riley? The opposite of what Joy thinks. Right? Like the, if you have a character who changes, the further apart you can put those poles, the better for you. Right? The, the closer they are, boy, that's just really hard, right? Change, change your 10%. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but it's, yeah, you got to beat them up. You probably get this question all the time, but how do you deal with writer's block, especially when you're on a deadline? <laughs> well, p- fear and panic work really well. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I write out of fear a lot, and I, which helps because then I can't think about it. I can't overthink it, um, just pure panic. Um, I, 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 I try to emotionally connect into the character and fight for that character. And what they want to say. And if they're not coming, I just keep writing. You just have to keep writing every day. You know, at Pixar, when it's literally your job and you have to go in for eight hours every day, you just have to keep writing. And you have to trust it'll 
the well will it it's not dry. You don't have one good idea. You have 10 million good ideas. But the only way you get to that idea is you go back to the well and pull up another bucket, right? And yeah, some of the buckets aren't getting good. <laughs> but if you keep pulling, you'll get a good idea. And especially if you're getting notes and you're getting people and you're getting a lot of reflection back, um, that'll help. So, um, and sometimes fear blocks me because I get scared, right? I mean, like everybody, like, oh my God, this just sucks. There's nothing else here but suckage. It just sucks and none of this will work. But you know how that goes, right? It sucks, it sucks, it sucks. And then you get one little thing and you're like, oh, maybe that sucks less. <laughs> I'm going to go down that road for a little while. <laughs> Um, but you have to be willing. I mean, like I just said, I just sent an outline. I've already written a draft, by the way. And I didn't think the draft worked. So I sent an outline with 16 pages of questions. Because you have to be willing to go all of it, all of it, all of it out. And, you know, to me, rewriting isn't going across the top and changing things because you're just changing symptoms. The disease is way down here. And you're just going to change the symptoms and then get it, and then the disease is still here. So then you get a whole new set of symptoms, and you're just going to keep doing that over and over. I mean, when you wrote at Pixar, you do your screening, you do your brain trust, you get your 300 sets of notes, and then you go in a room with cards, and you start all over every time. You recard the whole thing. You don't go back to one script page. So brand new every time. So it's about go back down to the bottom, go back down to the bottom. What are the, what's the core concept here? Who's your main character? What do they want? What do they need? What's the main relationship? What are the stakes? All that stuff. And find the crack, right? And sometimes it's you just, I just, like I'm on the project right now, I think I just don't want to face it, right? I just don't want to. I, I'm, I think I'm psychologically having to look at something, and it's like a blind spot. And I, the only way I'm going to get through that blind spot is to just be daring enough to jump off a cliff and say, well, what if? Do a writing exercise. Just tell yourself, it's a writing exercise. Nobody has to see it. What if she did the opposite of what you think she has to do? Just what if? Or what if that dumb idea your friend gave you? It's so stupid. You hate it. You hate that idea. It's a writing exercise. Just do it for 20 minutes because maybe your brain is afraid of that idea. You know what I mean? Like sometimes when I'm giving notes, I always ask questions because like I read this script and it was very clear to me. It was about the two brothers. The father was just a totally cliche, flat character. He should just get cut out. Like I knew exactly what to do with this script, but I didn't say any of it. I just started asking questions of the, of the writer and suddenly I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's the father character? And it became very clear to me that it was the movie was about the dad. But the writer is so afraid to scratch that scab that it's like his brain made that character really flat and boring, like, do not even look over there. That is just not important at all. Meanwhile, there's this giant pot of stuff sitting under that flat character. And all I did was go, click, and it went, boof. Right? So... Are you having writer's black because you're not really leaning into what's scaring you emotionally? It's making you feel too vulnerable, right? I mean, hopefully you're leaning into something that at least once when you're writing, you feel like you're going to throw up or 
have to run around the block or something because it's getting too close, right? But that's, you know, that takes a lot of work to get there. Well, thank you. (laughs) 